Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Some English Gardens, published in 1904. This story looks at English gardens at the turn of the 20th century. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shed their words of gratitude with me during the week. I hope you all enjoyed the Easter break and are getting the rest that you need. Firstly, a huge thank you to White as Heidi for becoming a new $5 patron on Patreon. Your monthly contribution is truly appreciated. Thank you to Abby for your lovely Easter message through the website. Thank you to BJ Robinson from Murrumbina. I'm glad to know someone in my hometown of Melbourne is benefiting from the podcast. Thank you to Diane Saunderson for your message on Facebook. Thank you also to Pandora, Gil Gaming and Samantha Strange for your lovely messages on Instagram. I appreciated the messages that each of you wrote. Thank you. And finally, thank you to Shannon Guile for your recommendation on Twitter. Thank you always to all the patrons and sponsors who continue to support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, Your support allows me to bring out more episodes to help those who need them. If you would like to sponsor the show because the podcast helps you fall asleep, please visit boyyoutosleep.com. If I've missed any of your comments or messages, please send me a message through the website so I can thank you personally. Your reviews and messages mean a great deal to me. In the meantime... Lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Some English Gardens by George S. Algard Preface The publication of this collection of reproductions of watercolour drawings would have been impossible without the willing cooperation of the owners of the originals. Special acknowledgement is therefore due to them for their kindness and courtesy, both in consenting to such reproduction and in sparing the pictures from their walls. On pages 4 and 5 is given a full list of pictures, together with the names of the owners to whom we are so greatly indebted. We have also had the valuable assistance of Mr. Marcus B. Huish of the Fine Arts Society, who has taken the greatest interest in the world from its inception. Chapter 1. 
Brockenhurst. The English gardens in which Mr. Elwood delights to paint are for the most part those that have come to us through the influence of the Italian Renaissance, those that in common speech we call gardens of formal design. The remote forefathers of these gardens of Italy, now so well known to travellers, were the old pleasure grounds of Rome and the neighbouring districts, built and planted some 1600 years ago. Though many relics of domestic architecture remain to remind us that Britain was once a Roman colony, and though it is responsible to suppose that the conquerors brought their ways of gardening with them, as well as their ways of building, yet nothing remains in England of any Roman gardening of any importance, and we may well conclude that our gardens of formal design came to us from Italy, inspired by those of the Renaissance, though often modified by French influence. Very little gardening, such as we now know it, was done in England earlier than the 16th century. Before that, the houses of the better class were places of defence, castles, closely encompassed with wall or moat, the little cultivation within their narrow bounds being only for food, none for the pleasure of garden beauty. But when the country settled down into a peaceful state, and men could dwell in safety, the great houses that arose were no longer fortresses, but beautiful homes both within and without enclosing large garden spaces, walled with brick or stone, only for defence from wild animals, and divided or encompassed with living hedges of yew or holly or hornbeam, to break wild winds and to gather on their sunny sides the life-giving rays that flowers love. So grew into life and shape some of the great gardens that still remain, in the best of them, the old Italian traditions, modified by gradual and insensible evolution into what has become an English style. For it is significant to observe that in some cases, where a classical model has been too rigidly followed, or its principles too closely adhered to, that the result is a thing that remains exotic, that will not assimilate with the natural conditions of our climate and landscape. What is right and fitting in Italy is not necessarily right in England. The general principles may be imported and may grow into something absolutely right but they cannot be compelled or coerced into fitness any more than we can take the myrtles and lentisks of the Mediterranean region and expect them to grow on our Middle England hillsides. This is so much the case, 
with what one may call the temperament of a region and climate, that even within the small geographical area of our islands, the comparative suitability of the more distinctly Italian style may be clearly perceived, for on our southern coasts it is much more possible than in the much colder and bleaker midlands. Thus we find that one of the best of the rather nearly Italian gardens is at Brockenhurst in the New Forest, not far from the warm waters of the Solent. The garden in its present state was laid out by the late Mr. John Morant, one of a long line of the same name, owning this forest property. He had absorbed the spirit of the pure Italian gardens, and his fine taste knew how to bring it forth again, and place it with a sure hand on English soil. It is nonetheless beautiful, because it is a garden almost without flowers. So important and satisfying are its permanent forms of living green walls, with their own proper enrichment of ball and spire, bracket and buttress, and so fine is the design of the actual masonry and sculpture. The large rectangular pool, known as the canal, bordered with a bold curb, has at its upper end a double stairway. The retaining wall at the head of the basin is cunningly wrought into the buttress and niche. Every niche has its appropriate sculpture, and each buttress pier its urn-like finial. On the upper level is a circular fountain, bordered by the same curb in lesser proportion, with the stone vases on its circumference. The boardwalk on both levels is bounded by close walls of living. On the upper level, swinging round in a half circle, in which are cut arched niches. In each leafy niche is a bust of a Caesar in marble, on a tall term-shaped pedestal. Orange trees in tubs stand by the sides of the canal. This is the most ornate portion of the garden, but its whole extent is designed with equal care. There is a wide bowling green for quiet play, turf walks within walls of living green, everywhere that feeling of repose and ease of mind and satisfaction that comes of good balance and proportion. It shows the classical sentiment thoroughly assimilated and a judicious interpretation of it brought forth in a form not only possible but eminently successful as a garden of Italy translated into the soil of one of our southern counties. Whether or not it is in itself the kind of gardening best suited for England may be open to doubt, but at least it is the work of a man who knew what he wanted and did it as well as it could possibly be done. Throughout it bears evidence of the work of a master, there is no doubt, no ambiguity, 
as to what is intended. The strong orders, the docile stone, and vegetation obey. It is full-dress gardening, stately, princely, full of dignity, gardening that has the courtly sentiment. It seems to demand that the actual working of it should be kept out of sight, whereas in a homely garden, it is pleasant to see people at work and their tools and implements ready to their hands. Here there must be no visible intrusion of wheelbarrow or shirt-sleeved labour. Possibly the sentiment of a garden, for the state alone was the more gratifying to its owner, because of the near neighbourhood of miles upon miles of wild, free forest, land of the same character, being enclosed within the property, the tall trees showing above the outer hedges, and playing to the lightest airs of wind in an almost strange contrast to the inflexible green boundaries of the ordered garden. The danger that awaits such a garden, now just coming to its early prime, is that the careful hand should be relaxed, it is a heritage that carries with it much responsibility. Moreover, it would be ruined by the addition of any commonplace gardening. Winter and summer, it is nearly complete in itself. Only in summer flowers show as brilliant jewels in its marble vases, and in its one restricted pater of box-edged beds. It is a place whose design must always dominate the personal wishes, should they desire other expression, of the succeeding owners. The borders of hardy and half-hardy plants, that in nine gardens out of ten present the most obvious ways of enjoying the beauty of flowers, are here out of place. In some rare cases, it might not be impossible to introduce some beautiful climbing plants or plant of other habit that would be in right harmony with the design, but it should only be attempted by an artist who has such knowledge of and sympathy with refined architecture as will be sure to guide him aright, and such a consummate knowledge of plants as will only once present to his mind the identity of the only possible plants that could be used. Any mistaken choice or introduction of unsuitable plants would grievously mar the design and would introduce an element of jarring incongruity such as might easily be debased into vulgarity. There is no reason why such other gardening may not be rightly done, even at Brockenhurst, but it should not encroach upon or be mixed up with Italian design. Its place would be in quite another portion of the grounds. The climate of North Lincolnshire is by no means one of the most favourable of our islands, but the good gardener accepts the conditions of the place, faces the obstacles, 
fights the difficulties and conquers. Here is a large walled garden, originally all kitchen garden, the length equal to twice the breadth, divided in the middle to form two squares. It is further subdivided in the usual manner, with walks parallel to the walls, some ten feet away from them, and other walks across and across each square. The paths are box-edged and bordered on each side, with fine groups of hardy flowers, such as the hollyhocks and other flowers in the picture. The time is August, and these grand flowers are at their fullest bloom. They are the best type of hollyhock too, with the wide outer petal and the middle of the flower not too tightly packed. Hollyhocks have so long been favourite flowers, and indeed, what would our late summer and autumn gardens be without them? That they are among those that have received the special attention of raisers, and have become what are known as florist flowers. But the florist's notions do not always make for the highest kind of beauty. They are apt to favour forms that one cannot but think have for their aim. In many cases, an ideal that is a false and unworthy one. In the case of the hollyhock, according to the florist's standard of beauty and correct form, the white outer petal is not to be allowed. The flower must be very tight and very round. Happily, we need not all be florists of this narrow school, and we are at liberty to try for the very highest and truest beauty in our flowers, rather than for set rules and arbitrary points of such extremely doubtful value. The loosely folded inner petals of the loveliest hollyhocks invite a wonderful play and brilliancy of colour, some of the colour is transmitted through the half-transparency of the petal's structure. Some is reflected from the neighbouring folds, the light striking back and forth with infinitely beautiful trick and playful variation, so that some inner regions of the heart of a rosy flower, obeying the mysterious agencies of sunlight, texture, and local colour, may tell upon the eye as pure scarlet. While the wide outer petal, in itself generally rather lighter in colour, with its slightly waved surface and gently frilled edge, plays the game of give and take with light and tint in quite other, but always delightful ways, then see how well the groups have been placed, the rosy group leading to the fuller red, with a distant sulphur-coloured gathering at the far end, its tall spires of bloom shooting up and telling well against the distant tree masses above the wall, and how pleasantly the colour of the rosy group is repeated in the flocks in the opposite border, and what a capital group that is, 
near the hollyhocks of that fine summer flower, the double-crowned daisy with the bright glimpses of some more of it beyond. Then the pansies and aragrons give a mellowing and grey lilac that helps the brighter colours and is not overdone. The large fruit tree has two spreading a shade to allow of much actual bloom immediately beneath it so that here is a patch of butcher's broom, a shade-loving plant. Beyond, out in the sunlight again, is the fine herbaceous clematis, whose excellent qualities entitle it to a much more frequent use in gardens. The flower borders are so full and luxuriant, and they completely hide the vegetable quarters within. For the garden is still a kitchen garden as to its main inner spaces. These masses of good flowers are the work of the Mrs. Freeling. They are ardent gardeners, sparing themselves no labour or trouble to their care and fine perception of the best use of flowers. The beauty and interest of these fine borders are entirely due. Indeed, this garden is a striking instance of the extreme value of personal effort combined with knowledge and good taste. These qualities may operate in different gardens in a hundred varying ways, but where they exist, there will be, in some form or other, a delightful garden. Endless are the possibilities of beautiful combinations of flowers, just as endless is their power of giving happiness and the very purest of human delight. So also, the special interest of different gardens that are personally directed by owners of knowledge and fine taste would seem to be endless too, for each will impress upon it some visible issue of his own perception or discernment of beauty, about the house and lawns are other beds and borders of herbaceous flowers of good grouping and fine growth. Forty years ago, lying lost up a narrow lane that joined a track across a wide green common, this ancient timber-built manor house could scarcely have been found but by someone who knew the country and its byways well. Even when quite near, it had to be searched for. So much was it hidden away behind ricks and farm buildings, with a closer overgrowth of old fruit trees, wild thorns and alders, and the tangled wastes of vegetation that had invaded the outskirts of the neglected, or at any rate very roughly kept garden of the farmhouse which purpose it served then. What had been the moat could hardly be traced as a continuous water course. The banks were broken down and overgrown. Water stood in pools here and there. Tall grass, tussocks of sedge and the rank weeds that thrive in marshy places had it all to themselves. But the place was beautiful, for all the neglect and disorder, 
and to the mind of the young girl that already harboured some appreciative perception of the value of the fine old country buildings, and whose home lay in a valley only three miles away. Tangley was one of the places within an easy ride that could best minister to that vague, unreasoning delight, so gladly absorbed and so keenly enjoyed by an eager and still almost childish imagination. For the mysteries of romantic legends and old tales still clung about the place, stories of an even more ancient dwelling than this one of the 16th century. There was always a ready welcome from the kindly farmer's wife, and complete freedom to roam about. The pony was accommodated in a cow stall, and many happy summer hours were spent in the delightful wilderness, with its jewel of a beautifully wrought timbered dwelling, that had already stood for 300 years. In later days, when the whole of the Grantly property in the district was sold, Great Tangley came into the market. Happily it fell to the best of hands, those of Mr. and Mrs. Wickham Flower, and could not have been better dealt with in the way of necessary restoration and judicious addition. The moat is now a clear moat again, and good modern gardening, that joins hands so happily, with such a beautiful old building, surrounds it on all sides. There was no flower garden when the old place was taken in hand, the only things worth preserving being some of the old orchard trees within the moat to the west. A place in front of the house, on its southward face, enclosed by loopholed walls of considerable thickness, was probably the ancient garden, and has now returned to its former use. The modern garden extends over several acres, to the east and south beyond the moat. The moat is fed by a long-shaped pond near its southern east angle. The water margin is now a paradise for flower lovers, with its masses of water irises and many other beautiful aquatic and sub-aquatic plants, while water lilies and, surprising to many, great groups rising strongly from the water of the white colour, commonly called a rum lily, give the pond a quite unusual interest. To the left is an admirable bow garden, with many a good damp loving plant, and best of all in their flowering time, some glorious clumps of the Macassian flower, largest, brightest, and most beautiful of hardy orchards. Those who have had the luck to see this ground plant at Tangley, two feet high and a mass of bloom, can understand the admiration of others who have met with it North American home. But it seems scarcely possible that it can be finer in its own home than it is in this good garden. Beyond the bow garden on drier ground is a garden of heaths 
and returning by the pathway on the other side of the pond is the kitchen garden, a strip of pleasure ground being reserved between it and the pond. Here is the subject of the picture. The pergola runs parallel with the pond, which with the house and enclosed garden are to the spectator's right. To the left, before the vegetable quarters begin, is a capital rock garden of the best and simplest form, just one long dell, whose sides are set with rocks of the local bargate stone and large sheets of creeping and rock-loving plants. Taller, green growths of shrubby character shut it off from other portions of the grounds. The picture speaks for itself. It tells of the right appreciation of the use of the good autumn flowers. In masses large enough to show what the flowers will do for us at their best. But not so large as to become wearisome and monotonous. Roses, vines and ivies cover the pergola, making a grateful shade in summer. Each open space to the right gives a picture of water, and water plants with the garden ground beyond and looking a little forward. The picture is varied by the background of roof mass, with a glimpse of the timbered gables of the old house. The new garden is growing mature. The yews that stand like gate towers flanking the entrance of the green-covered way have grown to their allotted height, doing their duty also as quiet backgrounds to the autumnal flower masses. In the border to the left are Michael daisies, French marigolds, and lower growth of stocks. To the right is a dominating mass of the great white perithium, grouped with pink Japan anomi, veronicas and yellow snapdragon. Japan anomi, both pink and white, are things of uncertain growth in many areas of dry soil, but here in the rich alluvial loam of a valley level, they attain their fullest growth and beauty. Bulwick Hall in Northamptonshire, the home of the Tyron family. But when the pictures were painted in the occupation of Lord and Lady Henry Grosvenor, is a roomy, comfortable stone building of the 17th century. The long, low, rather plain-looking house of two stories only is entered in an original manner by a doorway in the middle of the stone passage. At right angles to the building and connecting it with a garden house, the careful classical design and balustraded parapet of the outer wall of this entrance and the repetition of the same only with arched openings to the garden side scarcely prepare one for the unadorned house front but the whole is full of a quiet, simple dignity that is extremely restful and pleasing. Other surprises of the same character await one in further positions of the garden. 
Passing straight through the entrance gate, there is a quiet space of grass, a level court with flagged paths, bounded on the north by the house and on the east and west by the arcade and the wall of the kitchen garden. The ground falls slightly southward and the fourth side leads down to the next level by grass slopes and a flight of curved steps widening below. Trees and shrubs are against the continuing walls to the right and left and beds and herbaceous borders are upon the grassy space. The wide green walk between long borders of hardy plants leading forward from the foot of the steps, reaches a flower-bordered terrace wall and passes through it by a stone landing to steps to right and left on its further side. A few steps descend in twin flights to other landings, from which a fresh flight of each side reaches the lowest garden level, some nine feet below the last. The whole of this progression, with its pleasant variety of surface treatments and means of descent, is one direct line from a garden door in the middle of the house front. The lowest flight of steps, the subject of the first picture, has a simple but excellent wrought iron railing of that refined character common to the time of its making. It was draped, perhaps rather overdraped, when the picture was painted, with a glory of Virginia creeper, in fullest gorgeousness of autumn colouring. This question of the degree to which it is desirable to allow climbing plants to cover architectural forms is one that should be always carefully considered. Bad architecture abounds throughout the country, and free-growing plants often play an entirely beneficent part in concealing its mean, or vulgar or otherwise unsightly character. But where architectural design is good and pure, as it is at Bulwark, care should be taken in order to prevent its being unduly covered, Old brick chimney stacks of great beauty are often smothered with ivy, and the same insidious native has obliterated many a beautiful gate pier and panelled wall. But the worst offender in modern days has been the far-spreading Amelposis vici, useful for covering of mean or featureless buildings, but grievously and mischievously out of place when, for instance, ramping unchecked over the old brickwork of Wolseley's Palace at Hampton Court. Some may say that it is easily pulled off, but this is not so, for it leaves behind tightly clinging to the brick surface. The dried-up sucker and its tentacle desiccated to a consistency like iron wire. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about English gardens and what tends to happen inside them when they are well kept. I'll be working on bringing you another episode, but hopefully you're feeling tired now. 
If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.